0: Everybody, what is going on? Welcome once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast, episode 277 and the continuation of our midsummer musings. Yes, I am using the month of July to uh, just kind of I don't know, just be transparent, open a little bit, uh, share some of my wackiness, whatever it might be. Um, You know, for some, they find great comfort in that. For others, they find it incredibly troubling. I understand, right? Like, I totally get that. Uh, And with this whole series I'm doing for July, midsummer, I'm just working through or sharing some of the stuff that I've been working through. Uh, Some of it may have been for the last 30 years I've been working it through. Some may be for the last three years that I've been working it through. Uh, and oftentimes, even in that, there may not be like a full conclusionary note. It's just like, hey, here's an aha uh-huh, interesting. Maybe I should work through this a little bit more. And just again, kind of share it in the podcast, just even to show that I'm always in this process of growth and learning and looking at scripture and then trying to understand where I've had a bias in that and where I can fine tune my bias, that kind of thing. So it's all in there and we're all going to have a bias. We're all going to be incomplete in this project, um, but we're all trying to do the best that we can. And so uh, this month I've you know kind of done some interesting things. Last week, if you didn't listen to the podcast last week, it was all about my theistic evolution. That's one that goes way back. I've actually, I embraced that concept probably probably 25 years ago. And when I did, it was really, really unpopular at the time. In fact, I remember I felt no greater vindication in that position when I found Tim Keller leveraging that very position in his apologetic book. And I'm like, Tim, my man, you came through for me again. I feel like when Tim Keller believes a thing, then it kind of validates it. When I'm just believing a thing, it's like, well, Matt's crazy. But when Tim comes in with that, I'm like, sweet. Which is interesting too, because actually uh, in my reform tradition, there's a lot of people in the reform tradition that kind of go down that road. In fact, there's a book called Reform Theology and evolutionary theory, uh, and it's all about that topic. So it's kind of interesting. He goes way into the weeds on dealing with Romans in particular as it relates to supporting evolution. Um, but I, I remember probably 25 years ago, one of my elders at the church I was first a lead pastor in kind of floated by me a document some. Paper. This is back in the day where the internet was just in its infancy, um, but it was a whole paper dedicated to looking at Rome or not Romans, looking at uh, Galatian, Galatians, Genesis. I'm going to get there somehow. Looking at Genesis one through a very different literary lens than the popularized kind of young earth creationism model that all of us in evangelical circles had been pretty baptized into, uh, back in the, uh, you know, early to mid nineties, eighties, seventies, you name it. Uh, and even kind of revealed that when evolution was first put out there by Darwin, guys like B.B. Warfield, like, a monster theologian was like, oh yeah, evolution's great, no problem, doesn't have any problem with the Bible whatsoever, and it was only later down the road that it became this pride bar issue and kind of divided Christian communities and that kind of thing, and so anyway, it was just kind of fun to be able to talk about that with you all since I kind of floated it out there on Sunday when we were dealing with the Bible and science. And then I didn't really have time to unpack that. And and also, to be clear, I'm not even saying, like, my take is the right take. It's the take that makes the most sense for me. It's the take that I find uh, is really critical to the faith of some people. In other words, uh, there have been many people that, you know, they're followers of Jesus. They go to college. They take a biology class. They're challenged in their thinking. And they're kind of told you have to choose. You either choose evolution or you choose scripture. And I'm like this has been the ruin of many people and uh, we can actually blend these together. And so I'm a big fan of blending things together. So we've dealt with that. We've dealt with kind of why I'm more of a Bible scholar than a theologian, kind of dealt with all of that too. So we've just been dealing with different stuff. But today, today I want to deal with, uh, how do I put it? Uh, a place that I might have overlooked, um, uh, kind of a subtlety, uh, and it's the same subtlety that I think the Southern Baptists are overlooking currently as well, and expelling churches in ways that maybe they don't need to expel churches. Now, I know that sounds really big and vast, uh, but it's all related to women, and can they have the title pastor? That's what it's about. Now, real quick, I want to be clear about a couple of things as I go into this. First of all, one of the weirdest things for me personally is um, I forget, so I'm confessing, but I forget that what tends to happen is that Matt's opinion is then seen as the opinion of Redemption Church. Like if Matt believes it, this is what our church believes. Or if Matt has a question about this, this is the question our church has, right? And so here to be kind of clear on this, I am not saying that the position of Redemption Church is what I'm talking about today uh, because we haven't discussed this nuance that I'm going to really talk about, right? I'm Like I said, you'll see what I mean here in a minute, but, but, uh, I want to be clear that what I'm not trying to say is, okay, this is our church's position or our church position is going to change in light of what I'm saying today. It could, I don't know, but we're not going to be dealing with this topic as a leadership anytime soon. We're dealing with some other really important pressing topics that are going to take us at least a year to work through. And so this is kind of like a back burner discussion. And I don't think it has huge implications in the end, but it's one of those things where we're always wanting to come back to the scriptures and let the scriptures be our educator. And sometimes in that, there's this awareness that says, hey, I overlooked a nuance and maybe I need to think about this more. So that's kind of what this is today. And like I said, because of the recent press about like uh, Saddleback Church, Rick Warren's church being removed from the Southern Baptist Convention because they have women pastors uh, and some other churches also were expelled. And then some churches decided to pull out in light of all of that. Uh, It was one of those things where I looked at it and I went back and looked at the New Testament and I'm like, this seems to be we're missing a point on this. And so I just thought, man, as a musing, I'll deal with it here again. But I want to be clear. This is Matt's musing. This is not Redemption Church's musings. This is Matt's musings. Um, and in this, I want to be clear, too, that uh, I'm, I'm not making any conclusionary statements. What I'm really kind of doing here is saying here is an observation and here's an observation where I overlooked a thing and I want to clarify how I overlooked a thing. All right. So let's see if we can get into the weeds now and get with it. So here's the bottom line. Uh, When we started Redemption Church back uh, 11 years ago or 11, 12, 12 years ago, almost 12 years ago now, uh, you know, we had to really work through what our leadership structure was going to be. So we really just kind of camped out in the New Testament pretty heavily. We had been doing it for a couple of years even before Redemption was started for a completely different set of reasons. But basically to say, what is New Testament leadership? What does it look like? What's the qualities and qualifications that are around that and everything else? And in light of that, sometimes when you're doing a project like that, you're very myopic. You've got this end goal kind of in mind as you're doing it. You're driving everything through the end goal. And with that, again, you can overlook a few things. And so with this, I wanted to really emphasize what is New Testament eldership. And so in the New Testament, there's three different descriptors that are connected to some kind of kind of like top tier leadership within the church. The primary word is the word elder. That's the one that you're going to see most dominantly. The next one is going to be overseer. And then lastly, you're going to see this idea of pastoring or shepherding right? So elders, the chief one overseers, a little bit more particular to understanding what an elder does an elder oversees. And then there's this word about shepherding or pastoring. And that's kind of the functionality that elders operate in as their overseers. So in the same way that I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a brother, uh, like you can have an elder who's an overseer, who's a pastor. And in that, the big point I was driving home and it's based out of first, uh, Peter chapter five is that, uh, all elders, are pastors, right? So that was the big idea. So all elders engage in oversight and all elders in their oversight are pastors by extension. So you can't be an elder and not be a pastor. And part of my focus there was that I wanted lay elders to understand that they are just as much a pastor as the paid vocational pastors on staff. So you have pay and lay pastors, basically, uh, and all of which are then elders. And so that was really the big idea that I was pushing for there. Now, here's the thing that I think was the oversight and the oversight is that then the assumption is pastor or pastoring or shepherding is automatically an office. So if you use the word pastor with a person, you're automatically endowing them with the power of an office, Because if you say, hey, all elders are pastors, then by extension, all pastors are elders and therefore they have the authoritative office. What I have come to look at and recalibrate in my thinking is that may be broken thinking. In other words, while I agree that all elders are to be pastors, I'm not sure all pastors must be elders, right? So it doesn't have to flow both ways equally. In fact, if anything, you could have people that are pastoring. You even give the label pastor to, But in doing that, it does not mean, and they are by extension automatically an elder because they are titled as pastor. Here's why I say all of this. So here's some interesting fun facts of the New Testament. And anybody can proofread me, check me, reach out to me and be like, dude, you overlooked this. And I'm happy to acknowledge that. So I admit that that may be the reality, but in light of that, um, a fun fact that I found in the new Testament is that never is there a time where any person is called pastor. All right. So, uh, Paul is not called a pastor. Timothy's not called a pastor. Uh, James is not called a pastor. Nobody's called a pastor. In fact, the only time anybody is really designated with the title pastor, there's one passage we're gonna look at in a minute where you're like, well, what about that one? We'll get there. Um, But the only time that somebody is designated as pastor, is actually Jesus, which is super fascinating. So for example, uh, we see in uh, first Peter chapter two, uh, that we were straying like sheep, but we've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, right? Jesus is the shepherd or the pastor at that point. Uh, we also see the same thing in first Peter chapter five, he's the chief shepherd. So the idea of a senior pastor is not in the new Testament, except for Jesus. He is the chief shepherd or the senior pastor. I'm using the, uh, Uh, ESV version for this podcast today, just because of the word-to-word precision stuff. Some versions will say pastors or pastoring or something of that nature instead of shepherding, but it's the same word. It can be used interchangeably. So he's the chief shepherd. Uh, We see in Hebrews 13, he is the great shepherd of the sheep. So he's the great pastor, the chief pastor. He is the pastor and overseer of our souls. So the only time we see any person endowed with the label pastor is actually Jesus. Other than that, there are no human beings that are called a senior pastor, and there are no human beings in the New Testament that leverage the title pastor as a description of who they are. So that's just kind of a fun fact. On top of that, when you actually look up this word in the New Testament, um, for the most part, it even revolves around Jesus, you know, like it's often, he's kind of coined the shepherd in the gospels a lot. Right. Uh, but you really just don't see it applied to people. What you see applied to people is the display of the action of shepherding, right? Not title, but action, the function they're doing this thing, or they're engaged in this project of tending to the needs of others and building up the church in the process of that, building up the flock in that regard, right? So uh, with that, then I'm like, wait, so are we saying that only men can actually have the disposition or the quality of bringing shepherding to the church? Or can this be shared by both men and women alike, right? And if it can be shared by men and women alike, could you actually then say, well, because you're pastoring, you could have the title pastor Now, by having the title pastor, does that mean you're automatically an elder? And I go, well, no, because when we look at the different things that are in the church that are given, and and this word pastor then comes up, the only place I think really pastor comes up, here it doesn't seem to be talking about offices as much as it seems to be talking about giftings, all right? So let's go to that passage, Ephesians chapter four, verse 11, he says he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors or shepherds, uh, and then some to be teachers, right? So you get this five-fold list. And in that five-fold list, then what you see there and what he builds as the context is these are the gifts that God has given to the church. These are the gifts given by Jesus to build up the body of Christ. And when I look at those five different things, what I kind of looked at is I, I'm like, okay, was there ever a time any of these other things had women connected to these giftings, right? And so uh, when I thought about apostles, here's the thing about apostles that's really critical. We tend to think the 12 and I go, absolutely you should. The 12 are a unique group of apostles, which is why sometimes the New Testament actually calls them the 12. And that's why when you get to the book of Revelation, they are the 12 stratas of foundation in the New Jerusalem. It's the 12 apostles. So the 12 are a strategic group of people when it comes to apostles. After that, you have kind of a secondary tier of apostles of which Paul is the most dominant of the second tier, right? But he's not one of the 12. Uh, He is, you know, has Unique authority for sure, but he's not that number. He's a different group of apostles. And he actually called his traveling companions also apostles. And there was even the problem of false apostles at times, which is why the New Testament talks about false apostles or false teachers. But it was the, the fact that if you only thought apostles were 12 plus Paul, you could easily pick off that who was a true and false apostle because you'd be like, there's only 13 total, right? The reality in the New Testament is that there was many people called apostles because apostles just means like sent ones. It's like a messenger kind of phrasing. And so they they are unique. They are kind of a hybrid teacher, planter, evangelist, like all these things. But there was many apostles in the new Testament. And one of the most interesting kind of, at least we go, Hmm, we got to debate this one a little bit. Discuss it is out of Romans chapter 16. So Paul has this whole closing thing. He's mentioned in different names. And one of the names he mentions is Junus, or Juna. Uh, and, and this has been a name. June has been debated as a name, whether it was meant to be a feminine or a masculine name. And in this, he talks about this person, if it's male or female being well noted among the apostles. And that interpretively can either be the apostles know of this person, or this person is an apostle and is a well noted apostle among the apostles. So this is kind of one of those technical, places where again, interpretation can, can go either way, depending on a number of factors. What I kind of went back and looked at was like, well, how did the early church commentators view this person? And how did much of the history of the church view this person? And it seems that more often than not, the majority of the time it was landing that Juno was a female, that Juna was considered an apostle in the sense of a sent one, like Silas was and Timothy was and Barnabas was and like all these other people are sent apostles. You know, there there would have been countless numbers of people that would have been like sent ones, apostles, and that this individual was a female that actually had some kind of descriptor as an apostle. I'm not saying the office of apostle. I'm saying they had the gifting of and functioned in that which apostles do. So I go, if in this list of Uh, Ephesians chapter four, that you have at least one example, at least possibly that this was a female. And this was a female who was considered to be apostolic and gifting and function. Again, I'm not talking about uh, authoritative office. I'm talking about functionality. And for the benefit of developing the church, I go, that would at least show that in this list of things in Ephesians chapter four, verse 11, there was a woman that was maybe considered somehow functioning in a way that has this designation of being apostle-like, apostolish, apostolic, whatever we want to say, right? So that was kind of the first one. So was there ever a time that a woman maybe was in that space? And I go, there may be this one time in Romans chapter 16. So that's apostles. Next is prophets. And here, this one's really interesting to me because there are multiple examples of women who are functioning in that role in the New Testament. So, um, you know, you, you all the way to the birth of Jesus, right? So, you see Anna at the temple and she's considered a prophetess, right? So she had the gift of, and at the temple functioned as a prophetess. Uh, then you go into the book of Acts and you see uh, that there was these four daughters of this one dude that was a prophet and he had four daughters and all four daughters were actually prophetesses or prophets. They had this gift of prophecy. You go back to Acts chapter two, when the Holy Spirit's poured out and what's it say? Our sons and daughters will dream, dreams, see visions, have prophecies, right? Like, like women were gonna be a part of this prophetic gifting. And even in first Corinthians 11, you see that women were prophesying in the local church. Men prophesied, women prophesied in the local church. There was, you know, certain etiquette involved in how men and women were engaged in that activity. But women had the gift of prophecy, were given the title prophet is, or somehow prophet in the midst of that, because it's like, if you're doing the thing, then the title is fitting for you. As much as with Juna, If she's doing the thing, the title is fitting for her. Again, I'm not getting into the authority that can be kind of a beyond that issue. I'm just saying, hey, title based on function was true possibly for apostle, fully true for prophet. So women were prophets in the New Testament. So that was that. Then evangelists is there any examples of women functioning in that role of evangelist? And I think about the woman at the well who goes back and tells her whole town, Hey, I just met the guy that told me everything I've ever done in my life. Come meet this guy. Like that is her kind of functioning in that role. She's not called an evangelist, but when we look through the new Testament, the only person that really gets called an evangelist is Timothy. When Paul's just like, Hey, fulfill your calling, do the work of an evangelist. Um, that's kind of the only, at least for me, I could think of like, Oh yeah, he's that's kind of this applicational thing. The assumption though is just like everybody's supposed to evangelize, but some people are gifted in evangelism. And if they're gifted in that, then they do the task of, and they'd be called, they would be called an evangelist for it. Um, Another example of this was Lydia and Thyatira, like in the book of Acts chapter 16, I think it is, uh, where she clearly becomes kind of a beachhead of evangelism in Thyatira and a church is kind of born out of her conversion experience. So in that sense you go, yeah, she's kind of there as kind of the evangelist. And then there's even this thing in Philippians chapter four where there's these two women, they're fighting each other, and Paul's like, Man, can can you guys help to get those two women on the same page? Because they shared in the gospel work with me and they're awesome, right? And so this idea that they were fellow partners with Paul in the gospel, as he says there at the beginning of Philippians 4, you could at least say, hey, these two women were engaged in gospel work, which is evangelist work, right? And they were doing it side by side with Paul. And he's now sad that they're at odds with one another over some particular subject or whatever else. So there I go. Can, can women have the gifting of evangelist and therefore the title evangelist would make some sense, right? I go, certainly that could be the case. Now I'm going to skip pastor for a minute because it goes apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, or shepherds. And then it goes to teachers. I'm going to skip to teachers for a second. So under teachers, do I have any examples in the New Testament of a woman teaching in any capacity? And I go, well, certainly, right? In Titus 3, women, older women are told to teach younger women so you can say, all yeah, right, right, but only women. Only women can teach women. But you also see where like, Priscilla and Aquila, they engage in explaining to Apollos the more nuanced elements of the Christian faith. And so you see an example of a woman who with her husband is engaged in teaching another dude and helping to refine his thinking in that sense. And so I go, is there ever an occasion where a woman is functioning in the role of somehow teaching and is engaged in the teaching of a, a, a male, in essence, in a culture where that would already be kind of taboo as it is, but that's what's happening there, right? So I go, that's kind of an example of it. And then on top of that, I go, there are many Christian women who are incredibly gifted as teachers of theology, of Bible, of all sorts of things. And they teach in contexts even very conservative. So like the Gospel Coalition is a great example where they put on conferences and they have women teach in those conferences. So in that sense, women are teaching in a context of the Bible or theology with a mixed crowd of men and women. And the gospel coalition doesn't go like, well, there's a problem there. They go, no, that's a gifted teacher. Let's have that person teach. And so they even call them a teacher. There's some conservative evangelical seminaries nowadays that not only have women scholars teaching in the seminaries, uh, like they have like women presidents of seminaries now that are conservative seminaries. Uh, And so kind of in light of all that, I'm like, okay, so again, if these are giftings, can women be endowed with these giftings? And if they're endowed with these giftings, is it a problem to say the title fits the gifting, right? So she's a teacher. That person is an evangelist. That person is a prophet. You know, again, the apostle one's a little trickier, but I go, hey, there is some very High potential that—that's what Junah was. Was called a sent one or an apostle. So then I get to the pastor part, uh, pastors and shepherds, and I go, uh, if that concept of being a pastor just means to shepherd people, can women have the gifting of shepherding people? And—and and that's where I go if. Everything else in the list shows where women were engaged in those giftings. I think this is another place where women can be engaged in that gifting. And if that's the case, and if they're functioning in their gifting, it's okay to me. I don't know why it'd be a problem to say, then you can also have the title pastor In part because when we look through the rest of the New Testament, nobody else is called pastor except for Jesus, right? So no dudes are called pastor, no women's women are called pastor. Um, Only Jesus is called pastor. In fact, if anything, I think what's happened is we took the function of pastoring, we made it a title based on first or based on Ephesians chapter four verse eleven because it is kind of all those are all title ish. But we said, if you have title, then you automatically have eldership authority. And th- that's the breakdown to me. That's where I go. This is the divide uh, where I go. You could have a bunch of people that are gifted to be pastors but you only have some that are meant to be elders, right? And then that is a different discussion for a different day when it comes to, well, can women be elders or just men? Our church's position is that eldership is a male only office, right? Uh, And then deacons are male and female in our church. Um, But then this question of pastor that the SBC excluded churches over, this is the one where I go, "It, it may be a really unfortunate Event that they did that because I don't think they're looking at their New Testament and saying, "Wait a minute, what's it say about the word pastor or shepherd?" Uh, And are we just, are we again just shorthanding this title, even though the New Testament really doesn't create that as a very um, obvious space, right? To say. Pastors are always elders. It seems that no, elders must always pastor, but not everybody gifted with pastoring need be an elder, right? So this is where I go back to the saying. And so like at uh, Saddleback Church, what was interesting about that, and this is what Rick Warren was trying to, to get across to the Southern Baptist Convention, he's like, our eldership is male only. So he's like, we only have male elders, but we believe women who are gifted with pastoring can have the title pastor. And that doesn't make them an elder by extension. That just makes them identified as their function. And he's like, there's nothing in the new Testament that would prevent that reality. Right. And they're like, Nope, you don't get it. You're not being biblical. You're gone. Right. And I'm like, I think Rick was perhaps being more biblical than the other side wants to acknowledge or understand in that because I was just like the SBC and then I've kind of gone back and just looked and go, there, I see what I did there. I see, I did this logical flow thing, you know, again, if all elders are pastors, all pastors are elders. And yet the New Testament does not necessarily anchor that in any kind of concrete way. In fact, almost, I'd say the opposite. I it just, nobody, like I said, gets that title in any consistent pattern in the New Testament, almost to the point of it's odd that we actually use, well, not odd, um, it's funny, like people call me Pastor Matt, right? We're in like, well, there was nobody called Pastor so-and-so in the New Testament, but now I'm called Pastor Matt. I'd probably be better called Elder Matt in some ways or Overseer Matt, but those sound, one sounds archaic and the other sounds domineering. I know Pastor sounds just kind of just right, but I go, I think any any male or female who are Uh, or who is uh, then sort of commissioned by the elders to function in that capacity. If they decide we're going to title them as their function, we're going to call them pastor because that's what they're doing. They're pastoring. Uh, I don't see that as somehow usurping the notion of male only eldership right? And again, that's a different discussion for a different day, right? Um, That's a a much more intricate discussion than this one. I'm just looking at the fact that these churches were expelled because they wanted to call women pastors, even though they had male-only eldership. And I think the New Testament would fully affirm that a woman could could be called a pastor because that if that's her gifting then that's kind of what she is as much as if her gifting is evangelist that's what she is if her gifting is prophet that's what she is if the if her gifting is teacher that's what she is the the, the label is connected to function more than the label is meant to be connected to authority in the way Paul's using it in Ephesians chapter 11 or chapter four, verse 11. So that's kind of the weird musing for me today. So, and again, I'm not fully resolved on all of this. Like I'm just kind of working it through. But again, I love it when sometimes I go, I have these assumptions about what the Bible says. And then I go back and I look and I'm like, huh, I had a lot of assumptions in there. Assumptions like pastors are really common word uh, about human beings functioning in that role. I go, it's not that common of a word Uh, or it's a title. And I go, well, the only time it's remotely close to a title is in Ephesians chapter four, verse 11. Everywhere else, it's just descriptor ish, right? So give me an example of this. Uh, First Peter chapter five was much where I got the idea of that, you know, there's this elder overseer pastors. And if you're all three, you're all three and you can't be just one and not the other two. And now I realize like, no, they subdivide out differently. Uh, And so he says there, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. So all three words, oversight, shepherding, elder, are all in that passage, right? But what you notice is the title is elders. In this, even the authority is that of elders. They exercise a process of oversight, and then they engage in the function of shepherding. They're not called pastors here. Um, They're called elders here, and they're never called pastors anywhere. They're just displayed as those who are engaging in pastoring or shepherding, um, and therefore only in Ephesians 4 is kind of any Semblance of title connected to it um, outside of Jesus. And there, the other things that are described, women did those things, or at least quite potentially women did those things. Uh, And uh, in light of that, I go, I think Saddleback was fine to call women pastors. Like, at least that I don't know why that would be the offense. I don't know why that would be the problem. I'm not sure why we want to just you know create more fodder for division in the church um when that could have kind of been easily solved just by kind of looking at the new testament and going oh yeah yeah i guess when it comes to pastor it's it's not quite what we think or it's not quite described the way we understand or it doesn't quite have the same kind of level of oomph that the word elder does or overseer does. Um, and therefore, the uh, both the authority and responsibility connected to those things. Like elder is truly the office in, in that regard. Overseer is the office and pastoring is the function, uh, which can be done beyond the eldership too. So anyway, that's enough. I feel like I'm just going to ramble at this point. I feel like I've probably halfway been rambling as it is, is what happens when uh, it is kind of like a, Hey, I'm processing a little bit out loud on the podcast. Uh, but this is one I've been working through since probably uh, 2019. There was a book that the gospel coalition had kind of endorsed. They're like, you know, we don't fully agree, but man, you really should read this book, you know, because there's some really good cases made. Uh, and it was a guy that was a part of the gospel coalition. And he was dealing much more with like a passage in first Timothy chapter two about women teaching and having authority in the church. And, and he was much more centered in that passage there. That's not my concern today. That's not what I'm dealing with. Um, but it was from that, that it, that I started to kind of churn a little bit in my own head and go like, okay, yeah. What does the new Testament say about just pastoring and pastors and who gets that designation and why do they get that designation? And then once I looked, I'm like, huh, kind of funny all right, I, I, maybe I had some oversight that wasn't as right as it could be. And uh, and so maybe I just want to kind of process it out a little bit more. So now saying all of that, I'm still comfortable 100% with our church's position. So I'm not like trying to push on the position uh, that we take on leadership and everything else. I'm just kind of personally going like, hey, this is kind of a, and uh, I, I think we should think about these things a little bit. Because at the core of it all, I go, we want the scriptures to be the scriptures, right? And we always want to kind of come with fresh eyes and ask pertinent questions. And then from that go, hey, maybe there's a place that I need to, to, to tinker, retailer, uh, maybe consider in a different way. Uh, and this is one of those where I'm like, huh, yeah, I don't know if I'm being as quote biblical, which is a word I don't love, but um, for a whole bunch of reasons, I'll get into at some other point, but maybe I'm not being as Bible- um, informed on the topic as I thought I was. And it was because again, I just so tucked pastor inside of elder that I didn't ever consider that perhaps, um, I'm doing an injustice to even what pastoring is or what the gift of pastor is to the church. And that's a pretty unfortunate thing. So this is way more about just wanting to love the Bible and let the Bible speak for itself, uh, and let it challenge my own, blinders at times and it was one of those things where i'm like that might have been a blinder so anyway there's the musing for today i don't know if it's uh you're gonna be like that was so dull or you didn't really resolve anything but they're musings that's what they are so and it's a privilege to be able to muse with all of you and thank you that you take any time out to listen to musings because especially those are kind of like you know they are what they are so anyway beyond that got nothing else on this one for today i don't think but I do want to encourage you, be an everyday missionary, right? So I always want to tie it up on the everyday missionary. Uh, And man, more than ever, everyday missionaries are needed. They really are needed. I even think about this listing of those who have the gift of evangelist. Awesome. The rest of us need to be engaged in the task thereof. And to me, I look at that and go, that's multifaceted. It is bringing the good news of Jesus to bear on a world that needs that good news, right? Because in the world, there's a lot of bad news. Sin is the bad news that drives all the other bad news. We need good news. Jesus is the good news. We want to share that. That with people. And we also want to embody that with people. We don't want to just be like, here's the message that doesn't transform my life, but rather I have such a transformed life. Can I tell you the message that's transformed my life? Therefore our gospel presentation, our missional endeavor is to live it and to share it, not just share it, but to live it and to share it and to live it so compellingly when it's shared, they go, man, what you got is what I want. And I think the more we do that rally around that live for that, the more we'll be effective every day missionaries.